Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup, and Corey Yelland is away today. Lyme disease is an inflammatory infection that spreads to humans through tick bites. One man who is dedicated to researching Lyme disease and the use of cannabis is Dr. Ernie Murakami, a retired family physician. Dr. Murakami obtained his degree in immunology and bacteriology and taught at the University of British Columbia, where he is a clinical associate professor emeritus. Dr. Murakami is the founder of the Dr. E. Murakami Center for Lyme Research, Education, and Assistance, and has made it his life's work to further educate and treat Lyme. Dr. Murakami, it's good of you to join us and talk about this very fascinating topic. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the privilege of talking. Uh, I quite enjoy getting out the word about Lyme disease at any time. Now, for listeners around the world who may be unfamiliar with Lyme, can you give us an overview of what it is? Well, it's, uh, it's called a spirochete because it's got a spiral shape, very similar to syphilis. It invades the entire body. Every organ in the body is affected by syphilis and Lyme. So Lyme and syphilis are brother and sister in a, in a disease. It was syphilis then, but Lyme now. And it's um, becoming highly, um, widely uh, epidemic around the world. It's probably the rap- most rapidly growing infection anywhere in the total world population. It's really scary what's happening. And it's um, got uh, the ability to survive with a little production of a, what's called the egg cyst L-forms. And it's hard to believe it, but these cysts are able to survive in your body and remain dormant or active depending on the immuno status of the, of the patient or the host. But it is going to become more and more rampant, and we're finding that it's not just in deer mice like it was found, also in um, chipmunks, uh, squirrels, and shrews, and possibly other animals that have never been studied. And not only that, the insect that can carry it is not just uh, the, um, the ticks, but mosquitoes, black flies, sand flies, and other, um, any um, insect that bites an animal and bites human could spread this disease. But it's becoming a major, major epidemic, and it's got to be something that's got to be confronted by our medical association. But unfortunately, the medical world is very divided, which is an issue that um, has to be brought up very soon because we're hitting epidemic, massive numbers of cases every year. Dr. Murakami, I've interviewed uh, victims of Lyme disease, and it's a terrible disease, but this is the first time I've ever heard that the symptoms of Lyme are similar to the long-term effects of syphilis. Right. Well, I have a degree in bacteriology and immunology. I studied syphilis. It was one of my graduating theses, and they made me understand what was going on. And when I got my first case of Lyme disease, then I realized that this was actually the same organism, but uh, higher mortality with syphilis, but a higher morbidity with uh, Lyme disease, but the, eventually the same outcome. But it's got such a uh, widespread 
involvement of the body organs that the average medical doctor is not familiar with such um, a manifesting disease of every organ in the body. And eventually these people are called mentally disturbed. And they are uh, slipping through the cracks, unfortunately, because we haven't had any education to say what is going on. It's a multi-organ system breakdown, and it's called the master medic with good reason. Now, what are some of the common symptoms of Lyme disease? Well, if you get a local bite, you'll get a target cell rash, erythromargans rash, and around that area, it'll spread into the joints, causing arthritis into the muscles, myositis. It'll get into your heart and cause heart block. It can get to all, every organ in the body is invaded, and you could have subsequent infections or inflammations of that body. And in the third stage, it can get into the brain very rapidly, and uh, with the more uh, malignant forms, within a very short time, it's into your brain, and you have neurological problems. So there's not one body part that is uh, exempt from this Lyme disease spirochete. Is there a test to determine whether you have Lyme disease? Well, the test, unfortunately, is very unreliable. The ELISA test and the Western blot are used in Canada, but they don't pick up very many. And therefore, you have to rely on a clinical basis. That's the most important way of diagnosing Lyme disease is a multi-organ system breakdown. Your severe fatigue, arthritis, myositis, um, neurological problems, visual, uh, auditory, you name it, every organ is involved. And the doctors have to be taught how to diagnose this. Because if you don't, you're going to miss it. And these people end up with uh, depression and they're all taking antipsychotic medications. And many are very suicidal. And the commonest cause of death amongst Lyme disease is still suicide. And this is very unfortunate because there seems to be such a medical divide that is almost criminal in the sense that we, we have to update our education on this disease as soon as possible because we're in a major epidemic right now. It sounds to me, when I was listening to you describe this, the, the symptoms, it sounds to me like the, the catch-all phrase of fibromyalgia. Yes, you look at fibromyalgia, and, and I think a lot of them, and a lot of cases like MS and chronic fatigue and um, depression, arthritis, and lupus. You, you look at all those uh, features, and one statistic that I have right now that convinces that me that I'm right about this is that the MS Society has come up that Canada has the highest MS in the world, 240 to 340 per 100,000. That's an astronomically high number. And yet we have the absolute lowest Lyme disease in the world. And where does it stop and go? It stops at the Alaska-Canada border and at the U.S. Um, 49th parallel. It stops there. All of a sudden, it changes. We have a high MS in Canada and the lowest uh, Lyme. Now, I defy anybody to say I'm wrong, but if they can prove me wrong, please do so, because I think we've got to ac accept the fact that our education is grossly lacking in our medical world. Wasn't there a story that came out a couple of years ago that in the United States they've increased uh, the number of Lyme case victims by tenfold? Yes, yes sir. It was just last year. Last year. Uh, Dr. Worm, sir, came out, and he was a non-denier of the disease, came out and said he's changing his, uh, his stats. He's changing it from 30,000 a year in the States to 300,000, and he's still, I still think he's way lower than, than what's actual. 
But he himself, a denier, stated that he was willing to back down on, on, on the statistics of the epidemiology and the presence of Lyme disease in the states. If he says 300,000, what do you say? I'd say more like 3 million. 3 million? Yeah. And because and doctor... I don't, I don't think that lightly, because yeah. people are just having the syndrome, and they're just dying with it, or giving suicide, or they're, or they're just de- debilitated, and, and it's a very serious problem. But it, it's, it's there, and uh, just to give you a statistic, um, I have practiced in Hope, and I have 10 cases right in Hope. Yeah, I should tell listeners that per, you're talking one per, about... One per thousand. Yeah, I should tell uh, listeners that Hope is a town in British Columbia. Okay. Yes, that, that's where I practiced um, uh, my, my medicine, and I got involved with tick removal, and I developed two wood tick removal techniques, and that led to a presentation at the um, Borrelia Association Foundation meeting in Vancouver, and that's when Dr. George Price, who works in my clinic, came up and had the first case of Lyme disease in British Columbia, diagnosed by the CDC and uh, treated and uh, treated by uh, Dr. Kastrikoff, uh, another neurological neurologist from works in my office, and um, Dr. Sason, uh, another internist, came to my office. We uh, lectured, and I, I picked up all their knowledge about Lyme disease from these three people who worked in my office. And um, my knowledge spread out, and before I knew it, I was getting good results all the time on the successful treatment with the longer-term antibiotics and also the cystic form of this disease and the biofilm, which is the cause of the prolonging of this disease. And Doc- that's when I was able to be ahead of everybody when it came to Lyme disease. Dr. Murakami, if someone is diagnosed with Lyme disease, what is the conventional medical treatment? Well, if you get it in stage one, right after the bite, you could go for antibiotics for one month. Now, some doctors will say you only need two, uh, two capsules of doxycycline at that time of the bite. But this is not proven to be an effective treatment because the, they might kill the spirochetes in the circle, in the target rash. But at the, tar- the tick, when it bites you, it is ingesting not, uh, inve- uh, infecting not only with spirochetes, it's infecting with the eggs and the survival forms that is injected into the host. So therefore, you get two capsules of doxycycline is all you need, so they say, but that'll kill only the spirochetes on the surface of the, causing the circle of the target rash. But that embedded deeply, about a month la- a week later, these target um, cells will disappear, but the uh, deep-seated cysts, survival forms, will start to mature and the patient won't get Lyme disease. And the two capsules is erroneously a treatment for medical prof- by the medical profession, and they're still doing it today. So the tick has a very ingenious way of surviving by laying the eggs, and you kill off the, 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 the tick, the host, but the, the eggs are still there, and they can yes. mature and hatch. That's right. Anything yeah. will kill the spirochete. Any antibiotic will kill the spirochete, even yeah. some chemicals. Steva, alcohol, will kill the live spirochete. Okay. But the eggs are so viable and durable that they could stay in the body and start to mature at a point later in life, especially when the patient is, say, immunocompromised, or if the virulence of the spirochetes are gone but the eggs are still there, the eggs will survive and develop Lyme disease in the patient. And they've taken frozen uh, cystic forms or egg forms of this disease, frozen them, thawed them out, inject them into the mice, and they get Lyme disease. So you've got proof that it's the survival forms that we're not looking at. Most doctors aren't even taught about eggs in survival forms. 
and the biofilm of Lyme disease. Dr. Murakami, how did you get interested in cannabis and Lyme disease? Well, I treated over 3,000 patients until uh, my license was uh, not available. Um, but during that time, a lot of people, I would say about 15%, said, Dr. Murakami, we've taken antibiotics. You referred us to specialists for IV therapy. In fact, these doctors have given us the one month of so-called treatment. We still didn't get better. And some of them did, in my um, request, request three months of, of the month, and they succeeded. But there was still, even with the three months of treatment, there are people above 15% persisted in having symptoms. And I know that a lot of my patients said that they were symptomatically relieved of symptoms when they took a puff of marijuana. But I said, I'm against smoking. I'm against smoking pot or smoking cigarettes of any form. So if you want to get any benefit, try the hemp cannabidiol, which is legal and available. And uh, the, the government does not frown upon using hemp cannabidiol. There is a frowning upon the using of marijuana cannabidiol. So anyway, some of the people that I recommended the uh, hemp cannabidiol felt much better, and some of them used it for long periods of time, back to school, back to university, and and able to live a normal life. But what happened was that a couple of my um, patients said, Dr. Rickami, I've been taking this stuff. I ran out of money, but my Lyme symptoms did not come back. Now, this was about nearly about two years ago when this fellow told me about that. That made me quite excited. And another case said, uh, I've been on it for two years, and my symptoms did not come back. So it may be just coincidence. But I said, there's got to be an antibiotic effect if you have no symptoms after you stop. So I um, got a hold of the New Haven University in Connecticut and uh, Dr. Eva Sapi, and she, she agreed to do a study of the uh, cannabidiol from hemp on the spirochetes in the test tube. She did it for me, and I don't know whether she was really agreeable or not, but she said, okay, I'll do it. And she phoned me back, quite excited, and said, Ernie, it did kill the limes in the test tubes. I said, well, let's go for the eggs, and let's go for the biofilm. So we did the biofilm, and that was the eggs, uh, and the uh, spirochetes were killed in 2014. And uh, the biofilm last year, in 2015, definitely the biofilm, which is protecting the spirochetes in the body, from destruction, from uh, invading white cells or antibodies or um, antibiotics. This biofilm is a very uh, difficult uh, um, chemical to get rid of, and yet the lime can produce this in the body and protect itself. But we found in 2015, last year, that the biofilm with the cannabidiol in 10 millimoles per cc solution killed not only the spirochete, but also the biofilm. So now we're into eggs. Now, eggs are going to take a longer period of time because they can survive for long periods of time, and that's being done right now. And our association, Burkhamy Center for, for Lyme, is raising funds to try and pursue this, and we know that we have to convince the medical world with double-blind studies, which is going to cost a lot of money. So we're continuing to raise our money, and hopefully we'll get somebody to support us. Uh, we have to ask people to... Um, support us, but we haven't found anybody who's quite willing to come out and support us because we need it for the medical world to be convinced that there is an antibiotic effect in vivo, which is in the human body, versus in vitro, which is in the test tube. Mm -hmm. That's the stage we're at right now.
that's quite exciting to find out that, that uh, this cannabidiol... Oh, yes, is, I was so excited when Dr. Yeah. Iwasaki sent me that first report showing the uh, spark eating being killed in the uh, test tube. And then, then I got the biofilm last year, and I'm just waiting right now for the effect on the, on the eggs. Yeah, you could almost describe really this. Excited. Yeah, you could almost describe this biofilm as a, a protective armor that protects the yeah yeah the spirochete yeah. from from and dying. And we found also that the biofilm was destroyed at ten millimoles per cc, and this was done together. The biofilm and the spirochete were put in one tube, and they both were killed completely with the ten millimoles of the pancreatidial per cc. Well, tell we are really fascinated. I've really been happy about it. I know a lot of my skeptics are still there, even among the Lyme literate people. They feel that I'm, you know, a bit over my head. But I, I've got evidence and I've got graphs that I can uh, show people, and I'll send it to you if you like, of the two graphs of killing the spirochete and killing the biofilm and the spirochete. I haven't got the report on the killing of the eggs at the present time. Can you tell the listeners how much is 10 millimoles? Well, uh, a thousandth of a, a gram. That's not very much at all. No, no. And the thing that's great about it, all the antibiotics that are used for Lyme, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, narcotics, all have serious, serious side effects. Some of the things that we're using right now to destroy the, the cystic form in the eggs, like um, flagyl, plaquenil, secnitazole, and um, other chemicals, in, in, to destroy the eggs are, have serious side effects. Plaquenil is used also as well, but it's cancer-producing, and it's got a per- permanent peripheral neuropathy with, with some of these things like flagyl, secnitazole. The family of drugs used to destroy the eggs are, all have very serious side effects, whereas cannabidiol has been shown to have very minimal side effects. Very, very minimal. I haven't had anybody report to me, even though I recommend it for the doctors to use, I haven't had anybody report a side effect from cannabidiol. And it's been used in the Orient and in Africa for years and years and years, 5,000 years or something like this, that the uh, cannabidiol products have been used. So, So it makes me very happy that we have a compound that is effective and also non toxic as as uh, uh, the modern medications. Have you thought of testing people with CBD, cannabidiol, from the cannabis plant itself as opposed to hemp? Well, I can't treat because I don't have a license, but I can make recommendations to the doctors to try it, and I'm getting good favorable reports coming back of doctors who say that they've tried the cannabidiol on their patients, because I can only make a recommendation. Yeah. And I'm quite optimistic that there's a terrific benefit on the subjective anecdotal evidence from the people who are using it. And these people had previously been on long-term oral, intramuscular, and intravenous antibiotics and did not get a successful reading. So the 21, 20 or 25% that are not responding to antibiotics appear to be benefiting from the use of the cannabidiol from hemp or whatever source that they can get. Uh, hemp, uh, cannabidiol is legal. Hemp mm-hmm. marijuana still is on a questionable basis, but hopefully that'll be changed soon. With uh, Justin Trudeau's uh, um, promise that he was going to make it a de- decriminalize it. Once it is decriminalized in Canada, will that change your research at all? 
No, uh, so far we've only been able to use the hemp cannabidiol, and it has been effective. And people who have um, been able to get the cannabidiol from marijuana from uh, different sources through doctor per- doctors' permits, because doctors can write a prescription for it, they are reporting a positive result. But um, I don't think it'll change my idea that we need to get double-blind studies. In other mm-hmm. words, I have to get a whole bunch of people who have gone through the antibiotic phase, did not improve, had positive, say, tests from, uh, well, Canada has a poor quality result, but we'd have to get a plump place that has a standard, well-recognized result on the lab test and take uh, half of them uh, and treat them with uh, cannabidiol and the other half with uh, sugar. And that's how we do have to do double-blind studies, and that's modern medicine. You are quoted as saying a few years ago that your treatment for Lyme has taken 21 people out of wheelchairs. Tell us about that. Well, uh, uh, people come to me when I was in practice, coming into my office in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of my knowledge of the antibiotics, uh, due, due to the doctors who work in my clinic, like Dr. Sason, Dr. Price, and Dr. Kastrikoff, they were highly experienced in uh, their specialty, and I learned from them, and by treating them and studying all the literature about uh, uh, Lyme disease, I was able to find that the effective route is a long-term treatment that one, uh, stage one can be treated with one month of antibiotics, Two days is inadequate as far as I'm concerned, and I need proof if anybody's got it for me. Prove it, but I haven't got any proof yet. Second stage needs two or three months of minimum of a combination of drugs to kill not only the spirochete, but the uh, eggs and the, uh, the um, cystic forms or the L forms or granules. Those that require a special combination of the drugs that have serious side effects. And the third stage, when you have severe neurological problems, with seizures and focal damage, eye, ear, nose, peripheral neuropathies, paralysis, you have to use intravenous, intravenous ceftriaxone, which is the drug of choice. That has been internationally accepted. Drug, uh, the drug of choice for intravenous uh, treatment of third stage is ceftriaxone or a radiated family. There are other drugs that are coming, in, coming into the picture. Clindamycin and Invans has also been used, and a few others are being tried now. But but it is a prolonged minimum of three months in the second and third stage of Lyme disease. You know, Dr. Murakami, in reading stories about people with Lyme disease, uh, it is a horrific disease because the medical profession really doesn't understand it as well as it should. And uh, the conventional treatment of antibiotics uh, over the long term is ro- not really healthy, but you have a system which comes up with cannabidiol, and the only side effect is that it helps. I mean, I've talked to people on this program who have taken cannabidiol, and uh, the only uh, side effect is that their health improved. Nobody has that's said that. that n- that's a terrific side effect, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful that's, that's side effect. We, yeah. Because I was cut off my licensing, and because of the benefit from smoking in a lot of these patients, I came to the conclusion there was an antibiotic effect after they stopped it, and they didn't get the symptoms back. And now this is being confirmed, and there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence. If you look at the literature, a lot of people have been saying how they did benefit from it on a subjective anecdotal basis. But that's not what the medical world wants. They want to see a double-blind study. Do you think that the, the the public is way ahead of the medical profession when it comes to the use of cannabis? I, I believe 
so it is. It's been a sort of a stigma, and unfortunately, there's uh, three compounds that should be separated from uh, the fact that it comes from marijuana. One is cannabidiol, one is cannabichromine, cannabigerol. Those three have no THC basically in it. It is. It's very minute amounts that you don't get this high that you get with uh, THC. THC and cannabidiol, they both have medicinal properties. And sometimes the combination of the two has a, a, be- a beneficial effect. But if you go too high on the THC, you get side effects that makes the patient uncomfortable and they will drop uh, the treatment on it, with it. I'm wondering if uh, you've treated anyone using uh, vaping as an alternative to smoking. Well, I don't think I can say that I have enough experience with the vaping. All I can say that the experience I've had is with the paste or, or uh, drops of the, the cannabidiol. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the, I, I haven't uh, really been able to follow it or, or study it, vaping. Uh, all I can say is that some people say that you get, they do get some benefit from it, but then it doesn't co- complete it as, as a study. The only study I've done so far is with the, the hemp cannabidiol that, 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 that we've uh, done in our research. I haven't done any research with the vaporizing or the smoking at all, except for the subjective anecdotal response of the smoking led to the, to the uh, further studies in our part. Yeah, it sounds to me like cannabidiol really is nature's antibiotic. Yes, it's found in man and animals and sea life. And my feeling is I personally developed a brain tumor, and I thought, why did I bra- develop a brain tumor? Then I began to do a study because it was a rapidly growing tumor, and I, I found out about this um, cannabidiol shrinking a brain tumor from uh, uh, marijuana oil. I thought, oh, this is impossible. I thought it was a joke. I really thought it was a joke. So I asked the doctor, um, William um, Courtney, and uh, asked other around, and I got some information, and I saw this uh, brain tumor in a little child, golf ball size. They were going to do surgery, radiation, and chemo, it disappeared to 50% in two months, and four months it was gone. I said, this has got to be a, ridiculous. So I got copies of the MRI, and uh, it, it, it showed that it was gone, and it was done at a reputable university hospital. So that's why I decided there's something to it. I, I felt that man was made with endocannabinoids, mm-hmm. and we, as you get older, it starts to drop. And that's why I dripped my brain tumor. And you think about it, cancer is higher in the older age group. There are some younger people with it. But they're lacking the cannabidiol. And also the uh, diabetes. When does that come on? It comes on with later life. I got a feeling it's got something to do with your um, endocannabinoids that Mother Nature gave us, but it starts to lack. And there, there may be a way to avoid a lot of these diseases by the use of endocannabinoids through um, uh, artificial um, plant-induced uh, ca- uh, cannabis. How did you get rid of your brain tumor? Okay, well, it was um, it grew four inches in four years because mm-hmm. I had an MRI done four years before nothing. Four years later, I had a brain tumor, ten centimeters. It was growing one inch a year, and so they said, "Well, it's got to come out because if I keep going at that rate, it's gonna it's gonna destroy your brain." So I had it taken out except for seven millimeters. It was too deep to take out. Mm-hmm. So I thought, "Well, heck, the cannabidiol appears to prevent the growth." So um, they were going to uh, uh, do an MRI and do radiation, as indicated, to shrink it again, because the rate of growth was still going to be one inch a year. So anyway, at the end of uh, one year, uh, six months, 
it only grew one millimeter, so they canceled the radiation. At the end of 12 months, it grew only about two or three millimeters, so they canceled the radiation again. The third month, it was still only about four millimeters compared to 10 centimeters, uh, the size of the tumor. The rate of growth was so slow, they said, Ernie, you're going to outlive your tumor. So they asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I don't know if it's just pure coincidence, but I've been taking cannabidiol. I said, what harm is there taking me taking cannabidiol from hemp? It's perfectly legal, and people are using it all the time. So I can't say that it is the cause of my tumor growing slow, but it has been shown to be very beneficial for many tumors, cancers, epilepsy, you name it. It's been used more and more commonly by the average medical doctor who, who feels it's a terrific benefit that we are uh, overlooking, that we're not really studying. But I think the need for the, for the uh, association of the medical world and naturopathic doctors to get together. Now, I don't believe in everything that the naturopathic doctors do because I'm a medically uh, trained, evidence-based doctor. So I can't speak on what happens within uh, naturopathic doctors, but uh, some of our, our treatment methods could be studied together. I feel there's a tremendous benefit that could come if this was done. When you told the doctors that you were taking cannabidiol for your brain tumor, did they stick their fingers in their ears and say, I don't want to hear it? Yep, yep. They said, I don't want to hear anything about it, but don't change a thing. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, so, you know, does it? I it mean, doesn't, that doesn't make sense. You're saying, well, you're saying yes and no to me. You're saying yes, you agree with it, but no, don't you dare tell anybody that I'm <laughs> talking to you about it or discussing it with you. you know, it's just really tragic. Our medical association, they were the same with HIV virus. People were dying left and right with HIV virus. Now, nobody dies from it. Same with Lyme disease. We're so stubborn. We're, I accuse my medical profession of misdiagnosis. I said, look at MS. We have the highest in the world and the lowest Lyme. You tell me who's right and who's wrong. And I'll show, I'll show it to the doctor. If a doctor can phone me about it and says you're all wrong, I said, okay, here's the map from the world, the highest in Canada, 340 in some cases per 100,000. This comes from not me. It comes from the uh, MS Society. And the lowest Lyme incidence comes from the World Health Organization. It stops at the Canadian 49th parallel with the U.S. border and also the Alaska border. Now, you tell me. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the tick doesn't, say, doesn't get to the 49th parallel of the American and Canadian border and say, well, we can't cross here. Well, there's some, some doctors still <laughs> yeah. believe that the ticks can't. It was too cold in Canada. But they're finding <laughs> ticks up to 30 to 40 percent of them infected in the north, up to the Arctic Circle now. Right up in continental Europe, Arctic Circle, the ticks can't survive north of that, Arctic Circle. It comes to Canada, it can't survive in Alaska, but they can, the, the, uh, in Canada, they don't exist at all. Yeah, it gets it's cold in Minnesota, too. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing that worries me is that uh, when I was in uh, Grand Prairie giving a talk to the nurses there, they were telling me they had two moose come into their town covered, covered with ticks. Literally covered. 100,000 was covered on one uh, tick, one uh, moose. And this moose was dying. They called them the moose, ghost moose. And they actually become anemic from all the blood that is exsanguinated. If you've got 100,000 ticks on you, every few days it changes. You're going to lose 10 liters of blood every day. Mm. And these moose are wandering and half dead. They're not looking for food. They're looking for help. And the moose are dying. 50% of the North American population of moose have dropped 50%. Wow, that's and uh, the fa- fact is, they say, oh, it's the moose from wild animals only. But in uh, Alberta, there was a study done by all the wild animals. It was 105 ticks brought in, 
off of animals in, in different parts of um, northern uh, Alberta, uh, 10%, I believe, were the Exodes Pacific and strain. Exodium strain has been known to carry Lyme disease. So it's, it's, it's something that's not just making uh, man uh, uh, in a difficult situation, but animals in the world are being affected as well. The moose population is just dropping away like mad, and we don't do anything about it. And they're looking for help. They're coming into the civilization. They got food in, in their environment. Unfortunately, the ticks like the moist, damp areas. And that's where the moose live, in the moist, damp areas. Mm-hmm. And I have a picture of a, a cluster of ticks, about 15,000 estimated on this one branch, rubbing against the moose that went by, and the entire twig was completely free of ticks. So it took it all of that. One moose took that 15,000 ticks on its body. Well, that is amazing. Well, it, it, it's really scary. So everybody should look up the um, moose population and ticks, and you'll be frightened. And look up animals. You'll find deer, dogs, every animal, birds and rats and mice and cougars covered with ticks. Okay? And man can't avoid it. It's going to be there. It's there. Well, this cannabidiol research is fascinating, Dr. Murakami. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Good luck with it. Well, um, I hope to talk to Dr. Eva Sapi certainly and get some her to publish the support that uh, there is a, an antibiotic effect from cannabidiol. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it comes from cannabidiol from whether it's from hemp or from marijuana or a combination of the two. But I think that we have to open our eyes and the medical world has got to get rid of our big divide. Thank you very much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome. And, and any way I can help you again, just let me know. Mm-hmm. And that's it for another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Wherever you are in the world, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.